Welcome to the World Football Summit podcast, the show for football industry leaders who want to stay ahead of the game. We bring you the latest insights, trends, and stories from the experts driving innovation and progress in sports business worldwide. Join us as we dive deep into the ideas and initiatives transforming the world of football. From sustainability and innovation to player development, fan engagement, and everything in between. Our goal is to unite the global football industry and drive positive change and progress. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the World Football Summit podcast. I'm your host, Jaime, CMO at World Football Summit. Today, we're delighted to welcome Carlo De Marquis to the show in what was a super fun conversation about innovation in sports. After an amazing career at Delta Trade, Carlo founded his own business, Factory 63. His mission? To revolutionize sports properties innovation strategies and be a guiding light for industry startups. What I like most about this one is the number of topics that Carlo is knowledgeable about, including the intriguing world of generative AI and how it's changing the game in sports. A deep dive into sports innovation, touching base on fascinating initiatives like the Kings League, Wrexham, the groundbreaking MLS Apple deal, and the ever-evolving esports scene. We also talked about an insightful analysis he did on fan behavior and how it's shaping broadcasting trends. And to wrap it all up, Carlo imparts invaluable leadership advice and identifies key skills for the sports industry's future trailblazers. Honestly, this was a true sports innovation masterclass that I hope you enjoy as much as I did. But before we jump into the episode, we want to remind you that WFS Europe is just around the corner on September 20th and 21st. And Carlo will be joining us as a confirmed speaker for the event. Don't miss out on the opportunity to help shape the future of football. Head over to www.worldfootballsummit.com to buy your ticket right now. Again, that's www.worldfootballsummit.com. And now, enjoy this conversation with Carlo De Marquis. Well, Carlo, welcome to the World Football Summit podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. I've been looking forward to this since we confirmed you as a speaker for this year's edition because there's so many things that we need to talk about in terms of innovation, technology, and even leadership. So yeah, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you to World Football um, Event and Summit and um, happy to, to join and, and see how many questions I can decently reply to. <laughs> oh, I think you're not going to have a lot of issues there. Um, Carlo, I don't think you need an introduction, but just in case anybody out there is a little bit lost, can you briefly introduce yourself? And maybe this is something that the audience is curious about. Why do you do what you do? Yeah, so yeah, maybe you're too generous. Uh, I've been in, in sports tech or sports technology since the late 80s, uh, really starting in pioneering times where technology sport was just a small thing that made the event happening. So at the beginning, we were putting transponder under Formula One cars to take the time. We were cutting, you know, Formula One tracks to put the antennas. We were installing, you know, for ski workup in the mountains, uh, all the timing and, and data processing stuff. We were doing TV graphics. At the beginning, even not in color. So color was introduced in 89, 1989. So it was super pioneering. And then uh, mid-90s, early mid-90s, 93, 94, I immediately started being hooked with the web, anything happening with Mosaic. And so really the beginning, that was 
uh, I think, you know, random act of someone showing me to me mosaic and then me immediately, oh, wow, 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 this is great for sport. So we immediately start designing and building uh, rudimentary uh, sport websites or for big, you know, uh, sport events and already doing real-time results so early. So that was really cool. And then I was lucky to always have great clients, like really top global sport clients, like at some point, you know, we, we intercepted the beginning of UEFA Champions League, then it was FIFA, then it was the Olympics. So it, on one end, it's super challenging to manage those sport events like that and create, you know, fun engagement experiences for those big sport events. But it's also so easy to do something that is, uh, if you want, memorable, relevant, important, not because of you mostly, because of the client and, you know, the sport they manage and the fans that, that are attracted to the sport. So very often, I always add this, if you want, uh, traction to create something for the fans. I always started a bit from the fans. And I think it was very lucky to be, I said, maybe not completely correct, but I've been inside the sport, inside the clients. So the fact that we started inside, meaning at the event with the fans, with the even, I mean, you know how, how complex uh, sport behind the scene is, right? It's not that, oh, there's some people doing something and some cameras and it's all happening. It's super complex. But if you're inside, you know, you can see the pain points, you can have ideas. So it's really having this 360 degrees experience of sport that brings you on one end to trying to do something creative, innovative for the fans, but also for, you know, the people that make it happen for the fans. And in the end, also for the athletes. And it's, I mean, can you really get bored for this? Even if, you know, you may, I, I don't know, I, I never expected to work in sport, to be honest. I was more, more attracted at the beginning by, I don't know, music art or culture in general. But then, I mean, yeah, it was really a fun ride. I mean, and, and the fact that I always push basically the envelope to do the next thing and they allow me to, that was also obviously cool because being in the same place for so long, 35 years, you really need to be in a different place every year. Otherwise, it's boring, right? Uh, so that's kind of the, the rationale behind what I've done until now, if you want. <laughs> okay. And what are you up to now? Um, so obviously February 1st, uh, I've started this new phase where I'm, I have to decide. I'm exploring what to do. Um, recently, in the, in the last, I would say now, 10 years, I've been extremely, if you want, vocal in public, obviously at some point on social like conferences. So that's one thing I'm doing. And now it, it is uh, randomly called a guy with a scarf. It's a newsletter. It's a bit my character persona. And that's a funny non-sport related thing because very often at events, I usually sit in the front row because I, you know, I take pictures and I want to be close to, you know, to the speakers at the stage. And no, I don't want to say very often, but often maybe I ask questions and people recognize me. So it was a bit of a trick to get uh, my company mentioned, <laughs> even if I was not on stage or someone else was sponsoring this, the event. But that I'm not sure if you want to keep this part. On the other hand, the fact that I often mm, dress not really elegant or specifically fashionable, but I had these scarves. And, but in the end, they always mentioned the way I was dressed or the scarf. And I was like, oh, come on. I spent three months coming up with some new ideas and new creative concepts. And then all they remember is that scarf. So I said, but 
that's not great. But then I took it as a, as a joke and, and it became the guy with the scarf. Even if there is a bit of debate, I, I meet a lot of people that say, no, I should call it the man with the scarf, not a guy with a scarf. Do we see? Maybe for the new year, I'll, I'll rebrand. I don't know. But that's the idea. On the other hand, I have my you know, initial uh, small company that has consultancy called Factory 63. Factory coming from electronic music in the UK, it was, you know, the label and everything. 63, I don't tell you why, but you may uh, understand why, <laughs> embarrassingly. Um, and then I'm, I'm also working with two companies, a strategic advisor with Kling, which is this uh, more than 100 people now, super strong, super solid mm -hmm. um, subscription management, subscription retention and management company for streaming. Uh, it's funny that we met uh, when I did the what I think is the first startup competition uh, in sports tech at Sportel 2014, I guess. Yeah, so that's the thing. And uh, them and Grabio were there. So two companies that are doing extremely well now. So um, even if they, you know, it was a long, uh, a long journey for them. Uh, I'm also advising uh, my friend Paula Marinona and Ben Guatemar, two um, ex-Google YouTube found, um, execs that founded this company focused on monetizing YouTube for, for channels. It's a pretty cool uh, data platform behind plus uh, actionable uh, platform for YouTube. Uh, both for creators and, and companies, they're working with some clubs, they're working a lot in music. But the fact that there is a lot of data a lot of, and, and a bit of AI starting to, to make the, the appearance, it's really cool. Um, and then I'm trying to explore new stuff. I'm, I'm obviously playing, as you may imagine, a lot with generative AI. And I'm trying to learn as much as I can. Like I do every time, there is something that can be relevant for, you know, our sector. And that's it. I have a lot of kids. No, I have four. Two are young, two are independent. So I, I have a lot of stuff to do, to be honest. I yeah. thought I was relaxing a bit, but I'm not. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think not. you're getting, you're not getting bored. I don't no, think. No. I have to say, no, I'm not. And it's funny, your story about a um, guy with a scarf. It kind of reminds me of um, the the concept um, that uh, Seth Godin explains in his book, Purple Cow. It's just a way yeah. to stand out, no? So interesting. Uh, by the way, I recommend the readers to sign up to to a guy with a scarf because if you want to be up to date with everything that's going on from a technology and, and innovation perspective, uh, Carlo explains it very, very well. Um, so yeah. Um, I try. Yes. Thank you. And you mentioned generative AI, and I guess in today's world, it seems mandatory that we start <laughs> the conversation about this, right? Um, but I'm going to assume that everybody now sees a potential. But I did find interesting in your case, you described a model uh, with four ways in which uh, generative AI can be accessed, right? Um, and I think this is important to understand why this technology is or has become so massively adopted over the recent months. So can you go into detail? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think, as you said, so much has been uh, said, and uh, unfortunately, a, a lot has been said, and, and I hope also a lot has been done, because as last year, we were all into, you know, Web3, NFT, and Metaverse. A lot of people were talking about, few people were experts, very few people were doing something with it, right? I think this year, um, there is a bit of repetition of this huge hype. Uh, this seems a bit too so, bit more solid than what 2022 was with, with those things. Uh, but still, there are a lot of doubts. I think it's important that we are asking more questions now than we were last year. Or people at least are trying to answer some questions. In general, 
I was trying to find, you know, uh, stay a bit out of the obvious of what everything everybody can read on uh, on blogs and news. And uh, when I see how I use, I obviously experiment a lot. I've counted that I've tested, used, and, and some are always open on my browser, to be honest. Three or four are always open on my browser. I've used 27 tools in the last, whatever, six months. Uh, obviously, start with LGPT, Midjourney, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The video thing, Runway, Synthesia. Uh, I've wrote a book. So I've done a lot of experiments. And I realized that the model that you're referring is the one I, I showed two weeks ago uh, at this SVG Europe event that in, uh, in Milano at Sky, at Sky Italia. It's talking about the way any person can use this tool through different ways. One is what I call no code. To make it simple, ChatGPT. There's no code involved. I can insert a prompt. It's ChatGPT, so it's both a chat interface and it uses a GPT model. And that's available to everybody, right? And then there is what I call low code, which is for the bit more advanced user. You don't really have to be a programmer to use it, but maybe the way you combine more tools, uh, it means you may generate uh, not really text, but maybe instruction for another AI tool to create then the next. And it's, uh, there also, I don't know if you saw AutoGPT, AutoGPT, where it does it for you, right? But the idea that you have to be a bit more, you know, hands-on, and you can create, I think, very often more complex uh, results. Then there is the, what I mean, what every programmer, every company, every startup in these days is using code, coding, programming. I also consider a fourth one, which is what I call deep code, which means those companies, startups that are working in generative AI to, to create AI, uh, generative AI tools. Because we have seen a, a lot of startups that are using those tools to create experiences, uh, so, I think that that's a distinction, but I want to focus mostly on the first two. I think what what I was trying to to and again apply to our sector. So in our, I mean, the way I'm used to see the market, it's there are these what we I also consider always consider clients, right? So the sport organization, the media companies, the telco. So there is this even layer on top of that. You you can normally have. Fans, user, consumers, like people interacting with these experiences that this media company or uh, sport organization are, are putting uh, uh, available to the market. And then you have something that, I, yeah, five, no, maybe five years ago you would mention less, the creators. So these are, if you want, users or solopreneurs, no, <laughs> that become a small media company and so do more than a user, but do clearly less than a media company. Going down in this uh, hierarchy, if you want, there are the vendors, all the companies that are producing platform tools, uh, products for the media and sport industry, right? In all these places, there is people. So user, creators, people working in media company, people working in sport organization, people working at vendors level can use no code generative AI today. And depending, I mean, what your job is, et cetera, at the moment, it is reasonably possible to use even the, the, the simpler, so simpler, <laughs> the more uh, the, the more famous one, so the most famous one, ChatGPT, and use it as an extension of your uh, team. It's like having, you know, like, uh, maybe a junior copywriter always with you, someone you can test some strategic ideas with you, a much better interface than, you know, Google, 
you want to test some contracts you're doing, so always being careful about the IP, etc. This can augment can augment the, the the productivity or accelerate the productivity of a lot of these people in these different places, and this can be very transformational because. You can have the user that instead of checking on your website, uh, maybe ask ChatGPT about something if it's not too, uh, too new, even if now with the plugin, you may be able to get some new information also there. You have a creator that can take a bit of these video tools or image tools and a bit of ChatGPT and create new content uh, if you want in an easy way, etc. You may have people inside your clients at the media level or at sport level that also do things like that. And then you have people inside companies that can use low-code to even create more sophisticated content. So that's the impact that I think it's important to understand. And there are a lot of more considerations. So just focusing on that, it can really now, I mean, these days, it can have an impact on how people are are doing stuff, normal day-by-day stuff. There is a lot of caveats. It, it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of considerations. But that's the, if you want, the model I was trying to focus on. And to your point? Just this very morning, I was actually testing um, how ChatGPT can connect with, and, and not to plug any particular tool here, uh, but with with Zapier, and you can also do this with Make, and yeah. and you can just the, the amount of possibilities that just opens up to automate things is just uh, amazing. Um, so definitely recommend the audience check that out. Um, and actually, that that kind of leads me to to my next question because you did explain well several use cases about how teams can use this. Unless you want to go into more details about other use cases that are important, one of the things I'm thinking about also is possibilities seem endless, and that can actually be overwhelming um, in the sense of okay, where do I start? So I don't know. I guess if you can highlight what are the most call it predominant cases that you have seen sports properties or sports-related organizations use generative AI just for them to get a sense of, you know, this is something I need to focus on. Mm-hmm. I have to say, the sport per se, if you compare it to, I, I, was, on a, I was on stage yesterday in a, here in, uh, in the land, in the wine region, there is a very nice festival, the TV, TV and radio festival, media festival, which, uh-huh. like, with, with famous people. We were on a smaller stage. <laughs> okay. And, and the discussion was exactly that. So the one thing that makes sport a bit different is that the act, the live act that starts everything at the moment, even if, and, and I'm focusing on generative AI. Obviously, we have AI in what we are doing and, you know, a, a lot already, but that's, we knew it. We knew it like six months ago, nine months ago. Okay, this is a bit new. So the fact that generative AI can change the, in in your case, as you're a, you're a football summit, football per se, maybe, but not even. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, at the moment, AI impacting it, uh, maybe in in certain ways, yes. This type of generative AI, not really. It starts from like if you start thinking about music or literature or art, that's very different. That's very different because there is not a a human at the moment act at the beginning per se, right? You, you can remove that. The result may be different, not be nice, but you can. In sport, we already have the threat. <clears throat> it was esports, right? Or gaming, sport gaming and esports. Yeah, there is a lot of people doing that. As it canceled football, like someone was scared of, all oh, the kids will only watch FIFA or whatever the name now the game will be. Uh, Not really. I mean, there's some people doing it. It's not even growing that much anymore. So it seems that that didn't happen. On the other hand, 
in the way the sport, so the, the fan engagement built on top of sport, I would say like many other areas, that can be clearly transformed. I mean, again, that everything changes immediately? Never. I mean, we're still, you know, listening to radio, et cetera, et cetera. People are still painting even if we have photo photo cameras, right? So I think it's more the automation of content creation where when it makes sense, there were already companies like WSC creating automatic highlights with AI. Or the augmentation of video with whatever you, you can do now, but also this fact that I, I've heard people saying that even if it seems a bit not, not counterintuitive, but not super, uh, you know, nice, creating a lot of content for social, etc. even of less, not, I don't want to say less quality, but less, you know, um, importance errors brings more engagement than few pieces of content. If that, you know, direct-to-consumer marketing theory is true, clearly you can do a lot with generative tools, right? But even normal production, imagine if you if you can replace things like, uh, you know, an online production where people have searched things, put some video together, you can chat with the, the highlights AI that has all the video of La Liga or Serie A and just build with a conversation the highlights that you want to extract. I think uh, the production people at the beginning that will be scared, they will, they will love it, right? And I think it's, it's more the, you know, the, the content and creative part of sport that will be impacted. But that's my impression. And it's a combination of text, images, and video for sure. I agree. It's not going to be one or the other. I think it's just going to be uh, probably, this may sound too generic, but it will depend on how the, fact, the fan wants to be reached. Some yeah. may prefer written, some may prefer um, you know, video or images. Um, the good thing is the interaction with the AI is going to help mold uh, that contact. No? But, um, and, and also, I, and just in general, sorry, I don't think we have to be like too um, utopistic to think that everything will change soon because one, as humans, we are lazy. Uh, when Alexa came out, Alexa, Amazon Alexa, no, you know, the voice interface, everything was voice. Some people were saying, it will be all voice. We won't use keyboard. Absolutely. Even I see, I've seen recently, some months ago, that the staff of usage of Alexa is going down. So we are lazy. <laughs> Before we really change the way we do things, it takes time. But clearly, there is, so there is this mix of acceleration and then adoption is different from, you know, what is possible at any given time, I think. To your point, I guess that may be why this mass adoption is happening because it enables us to automate certain processes, um, do stuff that, you know, um, we just don't want to do. And, and I'm just thinking about a framework that I heard in uh, the Marketing Against the Grain podcast, where basically yeah. they had a two-by-two axis, uh, and they said that uh, AI, what it's going to, if you put it in axis, on one hand, you put stuff that people want to do versus stuff that people do not want to do. And then on the other axis, what the customer or the fan values and what they don't value, I think generative AI, that's where you start placing, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, its role within within mm -hmm. the industry, I think so. Mm -hmm. so um, if we flip that around, though, if, if it's going to help us do so many things, do you believe there's a risk of, let's say, um, over-relying on generative AI um, for for many decisions and many actions, um, or, or do you think um, we will still keep some form of control? But that's so. Without going in the you know high ecosphere of philosophy, where I'm definitely not, 
uh, authoritative enough. Not in sport. As an experiment, in 24 hours, I wrote a book of 176 pages, which is now available on Amazon. And you can, I just did the paperback, not the Kindle. So you, I, have, I have it here. It's a physical book. It took me 24 hours to write completely from zero, wow. from, na- from an idea. I had an idea that I was something I think I dreamt of. Or it's like of a hallucination thing where you can uh, see things that happened in the past, but as uh, in a time lapse. And I, I put the concept, there is a software, there is a tool, one of the many called PseudoWrite that helps you develop the chapters, etc. And the, the funny thing is I, did, I, haven't read, I haven't read it because I thought, why should I read 176 pages of something that was written like that? I don't, I don't know. I, and I noticed that the more I use ChatGPT, the less I tend to read stuff, which is ca- kind of scary, right? But I think that's a bit the risk. So... I don't want to say that, okay, if, if AI wrote it, let AI read it. But that's what I do. I take a long article. I, t- I take three long articles. I put it together. I get it summarized. I think that's, that's a risk of, okay, if, if all is like that automatic, why should we care? But it's more, I mean, it's, that's purely, it's, it's not a strategic, you know, advice. It's pure experience. So that's what I experienced, that I lost a bit the, the will to read, which is not great if you think in, in terms of, you know, fun engagement. <laughs> Again, we're, we're lazy, you know, as humans. So, I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, yeah, it all goes back to, to the same concept. Anyway, yeah. I also want to talk about innovation um, yeah. because you have a lot of experience there about innovation in sports. While there are certain topics that I just want to have a, you know, a rapid fire session with you first, I do want to understand from you, what are some most common misconceptions when people talk about innovation? But, uh, very often we expect, so uh, uh, almost uh, against uh, what I've done all my life, which is working in sports technology. It is true that technology, even in sport, has brought a lot of innovation. Okay, but very often, especially when you know the, the inertia starts from the technology, very often you're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Not which is good if you then create new value for the fans or for the fans or say the ecosystem. Very often too much, I've seen the technology misunderstood by the sport people, not explained well by the technology people. And in the end, I don't want to say no value is created. The value created is not enough very often. So the fact that innovation is only technology, I think it's, it's, that's a misconception. I, I like one, one of the ambition, you know, when I, I normally don't plan a lot ahead. One of the ambition I, I, at some point I realized I had is not creating this super complex innovation, but I think that the person that in the UK invented the scoring clock for football on TV, you know, having it permanent, which now seems like what is. It was super debated when, when it happened. I think he, he was called David Hill. Maybe at ITV, if I remember well. But he invented, if you want, something so simple. But imagine the impact and how many people have seen it every single moment of a football match. So the fact that something becomes so used, even if it's so simple. At the beginning, it was not super simple because of the technology to keep the running clock. But, I mean, it is so simple and it had such an impact. You cannot watch it without, right? You would be, oh, there's something wrong. I think it's, it, that's also the fact, I think innovation is this mix of something new in the world and something that gets adopted because an innovation that is not adopted isn't successful, doesn't exist, right? Uh, I've seen in my career things that we invented like, I don't know, 15 years before, 15 years ago, 
And now there are like Apple TV is launching something like the thing we were doing so many years ago. But that's not a great thing eh? <laughs> because we were not able, for many reasons, obviously we're not Apple, to bring it to the fans enough or to bring it to market, convince our clients and bring it to the fans in such a mass market way that really, you know, change the way you watch sport, et cetera. So I think innovation is, is the misconception is that just is, is the technology. It has to be new. It has to be super complex. And we almost don't care if then people really use it and if it gives value, engagement, joy to people, to fans. I think that's the, that's why I'm focusing on innovation that maybe are not fully only technology based. I think that's a great point. At the end of the day, it's about adding value to the fan. And whenever, whatever you can create to add value to the fan is going to be innovative. And, and that's really the focus. Then the tools available or the resources, whatever. And that will depend on the type of innovation you want to create, but it doesn't have to be all the time technology, no? Yeah, so thank you for, for that answer, Carlo. Um, in one of your articles, um, you ran through four major innovations that are impacting the world of, of football in this case and, and, and even yeah, and even sport. No, so if you're fine with this, we can just go quickly around each of the four yeah. uh, and we can discuss them. the first one being the Kings League, which is a fan first base model. And you argue this is not sports first. And now they're diversifying the product into, you know, they're creating the Queens League. Uh, they could enter new markets, new type of competitions. So do you believe this is the future of football? So, <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and that happened in... Uh... In your country, so you know it well. I think it was quite a success, especially, and the proof point was Camp Nou, 87,000. So that was a big bet, like big, because it's a, it's a huge amount of people. It's not even the football the pitch was designed for, right? So, and, and the fact that they, they went Till then, it's like super impressive because it's really something different. And as you said, it was designed at, as something that started from the fans, from the influencer on YouTube, from Twitch. So to create a football that is more connected to the audience than normal football, right? And that's a, so if you want, the first experiment is, is a success. I don't think that uh, it doesn't replace football for, to me. Uh, should football adopt some of the things they're doing? Uh, if they're smart, they will, but again, I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> so, for example, I, I went back to, during the pandemic, I had, uh, you know, like everybody, I was home. I, I had all the kids with me, so it was not super easy. I had ideas, right? And, and one for the, when the clubs couldn't, the football clubs couldn't move. They could just stay in their training. I say, oh, to some club that I knew, I say, why don't you organize something like, you know, you have two huge players, create an event that is uh, club against club, same, same club players, create an event around that, stream it on all platform you, you can, because you, nobody's doing anything <laughs> these days. And, and maybe, you know, be crazy, I don't know, uh, do it with less, I don't know, mix a bit, some, uh, you know, one or two women player with the others, uh, change the rule. And I didn't have the same exact idea of Kings League, but that was the idea. So can we, as we own the event, one, can we stream it on the players' social channels, for example? Who cares? We own the event, right? And can we change a bit the rules? Can we do it in only 20 minutes? Can we do whatever? Can we remove players? So a bit similar. I think that that is, I mean, one thing is having the deal, one thing is making it happening and making it a success. But the idea that you can change some of the... <clears throat> 
to make it more accessible without destroying the game, because you know there's always this thing of destroying the game, but to make it more uh, closer to a certain type of fans, why not? To be honest, why not? Yeah, I, this is. I think it came out as a challenge that maybe the industry wasn't expecting, just because so how quickly it got, uh, let's say, accepted and and the interest it has drawn, not only from fans but also mm-hmm. you know from sponsors. They they are. Um, they are able to sign. They have been able to sign very, very good sponsors, and yep. I believe you know that is going to set the base for a a solid model going forward. Because uh, mm-hmm. you never know the the possibilities, no. So yeah. And speaking about models, oh, go ahead, please, Carlo. No, see, I just say to be honest, the fact that they can expand it to it was very Spanish, right? The fact that they can bring it elsewhere. It's in per se another challenge, another type of challenge. So I wouldn't know if you move it to another place and it will work the same. It, it's almost, to be honest, and, and it can be connected to the next one. It's almost when you have a great original series like The Office, right? And you want to move it somewhere else. It may work or it may not work. It depends on many things. It depends on the characters, right? So on, on one end, <coughs> you edit in the UK with certain actors you did amazing where you move it to the US in that case, no, with with actors that were whatever, maybe better or not. I don't want to get in, a, in an argument, but I think that's super important. There was also a French TV series of, on an ad agency, right? That was also brought in Italy and other places. And, and it's not like for, like for granted that it works. Uh, you need to find the, the magic again, I think. Don't get me started on The Office because then we're going <laughs> to finish this episode at, you know, so, so late. <laughs> I love that show. So many memories. Anyway, we digress here. But to your point, it's true. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, just because it worked in one market, it's going to automatically succeed in another. And that's, I think, something that um, from a learning perspective, I think the audience should understand. When you look to innovate, to expand, uh, you can't assume what happened in one market will automatically translate to the other. No? So so that's that's a good lesson there. Um, and yeah, speaking about models, Wrexham, that's yeah. a model worth <laughs> talking about because, I mean, it's all over the place, no? Um, now, I'm wondering, to what we were just discussing now, is this a model that's replicable? I mean, do you do you see more quote unquote Wrexhams uh, appearing in whether it's in Europe or other parts of the world? But so, j- just summarizing what it is: two Hollywood star, Ryan Reynolds and Rebecca McElhenney, uh bought this fifth league level league in uh, club in in the UK, and basically with the idea and, and putting. Uh, solid football people on top uh, also. So the, the, it was a joint, I think, the, the two people that I saw at the event in uh, in London were one coming from the entertainment and the other coming from football in the UK. And the idea was, let's start, okay, it's a club, it's a story, uh, we can buy it, we can improve the club, the community, etc. But we can also use to tell a story. And honestly, if you look just at the revenues, without going into my detail, the top revenue were from the original series that was created. And that was the original cost. So we take something like that and we create an original series and we monetize that, right? And then we give back to the community, et cetera, et cetera. I think clearly, I mean, I mean, it's obvious that football, the, the fact that then they were able to go to the next league, they were promoted, I think adds 
a bit of value. It gives a bit of credibility in the sport field, right? Because I think that's also a great story. And, and it was super like, everywhere in, on social, etc. So it was a cherry on the cake, to be honest. Uh, maybe it would have worked the same, but still that uh, adds a bit of, so even the, you know, the people in like more uh, sports sport that don't want to see, you know, this cross-pollination and the end they say, oh shit, well, they moved to the new leagues, to the new, to the next league. So yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> no. um, I think that's super interesting. I, I wrote a little provocative article I saw, um, by the way, much better position third league. A, a football club, uh, Virtus Verona. By the way, the, the fan, I discovered that the fans are connected. Virtus Verona is a very small, it's basically kind of the third club in Verona, a city in Italy, almost. Um, and it's a great story. I mean, smaller, they have the same coach for, I think it's oh shit, 30, 38 or 41 years. So it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. So you need to do an original series on that. I think it is replicable. I mean, does it solve football? No. But I think more and more, it's not like there's no one solution for everybody. I think very often it's people see, oh, this is happening. This will kill football or the opposite. This will, there's not, not against the fact that people that said we're saying the Kings League is for, is a clownery, as they would say in French. Why? I mean, it's, it's another form of football. It's like, you know, look at paddle and tennis. I mean, luckily enough, tennis is understood that paddle is, you know, it's the same family. Because if you, if you just say, oh, you know, it's bullshit. Don't, we don't want to see paddle. I mean, people are playing it. So it's, I think it's more embracing and trying to cross-pollinate because that in the end, the fans are doing it. Eh? If you don't do it, they do it. So uh, if you want to stay in control, uh, you should embrace the new stuff. And then, I mean, obviously, you know, take some rational and logic and, and, and evolve it. To your point about the fans, I actually heard this uh, rationale in, I think it was the Are You Not Entertained podcast, and, and yeah. it's true. No, today, everything is looking great. It's looking good. What happens when this goes south a little bit, right? Um, how's, how's that model going to look like, if it ever? I mean, not that I want to. I mean, I think it's, it's a very interesting model, but it's sport. You know, uh, there's up and downs. It's the nature of the game. Uh, so what happens when when it goes you know uh, when it goes a little bit down? Um, it will be interesting to see again how how that evolves and and yeah I think you could see more of this uh, around around the world even um, let, let's just see uh, if it's as successful from let's say a popularity mm-hmm. uh, point of view because one of the things that uh, it has done it has increased the um, adoption of quote unquote soccer. In the United States, yeah, um, and the popularity of soccer now is just through the roof versus what we have seen it in in the in the past. No, and I think this has been one of the reasons why um, the Major League Soccer deal with Apple, which is worth mm-hmm. uh, two hundred and fifty million dollars, yeah. I think, over the next ten years, yeah. um, is so high. Now, in that sense, um, valuations for MLS teams are. are just skyrocketing. Yeah, just look at crazy. Just look yes. at San Diego, no? A couple yes, of weeks yeah. ago. Um, yeah. I was looking at some data, you know, 500 million worth of that uh, value is, if, to put it into context, Newcastle from the Premier League, I think it's worth less than 450 million. Uh, so yeah. just compare, no? Um, anyway, do you believe those valuations are sustainable? And, and do you think the the MLS, Major League Soccer, is going to live up to the expectations? So in terms of valuation, to be honest, I'm not an expert. So I don't want to say because, I, you know, it's what I read. and, and But okay. for sure, it's big numbers. I have to say it's big it numbers. Is. It's impressive, etc. What I think is super fascinating. So 
Uh, I spent a lot of time with uh, in the last uh, um, eight years, seven years, with working with American leagues. So they're doing something in a certain way. We are doing something in Europe in a different way. There is learning from, um, you know, in both cases. And, and it's funny, Wrexham, uh, even at the panel that I've seen a lot, nobody mentioned Ted Lasso. I mean, it was, you know, something that started with an ad and then became a huge original series. That started a bit everything, I guess, because it's thinking, okay, we use soccer there, it's funny, but yeah. I think there is a lot to be learned there. Uh, the way they operate is very different, but they also have to learn from us, to be honest. I see the Apple MLS deal as super important because one, it's a long-term deal, right? And again, I'm, I'm always hoping that there will be someone that has the, you know, the control, the gravity to bring some innovation. And I see MLS and Apple as a potential, not, not sure that they will, they will do it, but for innovation. Because on one end, they have a long-term deal. On one end, MLS, because it's an American league, they, they look at what NBA there uh, is doing, very innovative always. They clearly want to innovate. Otherwise, they won't differentiate. Clearly, they have a notice in the U.S. that is a bit different. So, and that is maybe mostly in any case used to the other leagues, right? So in theory, I think it's a, an extreme uh, potential. There is an extreme potential for innovation there. Uh, it's a great place I would work with <laughs> because it's so cool. Uh, it, it depends. I mean, it depends how it, it, it I think they already launched something, for example, uh, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, not yeah. something again, amazing. Well, that you can watch multiple games. Yeah. Okay. Yes. But, but still they're doing it. I mean, then people don't hear, maybe they did it. We did it. But, you know, it was less relevant because it was not Apple. And by the way, uh, it's in a few hours, Apple will also announce a lot of new stuff. And right? so <laughs> yeah. we'll see what they do. <laughs> yeah. And that's what really stands out to me. Apple is not, it seems like they're a company that really looks into the details of when they launch initiatives, especially when yeah. they haven't been associated to sports before. So it kind of leaves you wondering, hey, they must have seen something that obviously we don't see. Um, which is why I believe, um, you know, I'm optimistic around that. And, and and if they invest, I doubt they're going to, let's say, abandon uh, this in the short term, no? Mm -hmm. um, so, so, yeah. Um, I, okay. I have to say, in, in MLS, I, met, I remember I met uh, Chris Schlosser, who was always in, in, in charge for you know, the digital side of things 10 years ago. And I think for him, it's like he finally has a partner that you know, can help me can help him uh, realize his dreams. That's the way I saw, I saw it, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think it's just going to be, and, and especially when you see the World Cup coming up, and, and there's just going to be so many activists. And of course, Ted Lasso, uh, I mean, that has been a game changer uh, from, from all angles. But again, let's not, let's not get distracted on that final innovation or realm that you talked about in your article are esports. Um, and, and you shared some research. Um, that said that there was a decrease in viewership. I think it was like 13% versus previous year knowing in the US. Now, they are also having issues with profitability. So that leaves me wondering because they had a huge spike uh, during the pandemic and maybe a little bit afterwards and now they're going back down. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that esports is going to make a comeback? And, and if so, what needs to be true for that to happen? I have to, to be honest, well, I, I was always looking at eSport like clearly, uh, if you want, a, not a, a completely separate, a different audience, not saying that who does eSport, especially for, 
I, I was mostly focusing in gaming to the gaming based on sport. So it's not the UG sport element, no. But very often they were mixed. And for what matters for the clients that I, I was normally working with, clearly, if they could own, you know, the, the gaming part of their sports for those sports where it makes sense, where it's popular, that, that would be a good sport extension of, of the sport, right? And, that, you know, a lot of clubs are doing it. So there is a movement, even in sport, in, in that direction. What I, I don't think, uh, what I think is, is problematic is that it seemed that as they try to win, to go mainstream, when eSport was trying to go mainstream, I think that failed. I had the impression, failed, sorry. He didn't realize completely because they failed. And that's maybe the problem. So you have an audience super engaged that they have their own channel. So this is what we learn. No? We, we learn about Twitch. We learn like what, ten, eight years ago, ten, seven years ago, we start the, the sport and media business started to learn about these sports and et cetera. And they were all scared. And we say, oh, the teenager will just do that, which is kind of true. But then I saw when this company were trying to go, okay, I thought they, they almost went the other way. No? So they say, okay, but there are this, all these broadcast rights, all these brands advertising. Can we go mainstream? Not taking the not the gaming part, but the, the esports side. No, can we become uh, a, a show like you know FIFA World Cup is the NFL is? I think at the moment that was seems a bit in trouble. So it didn't happen in 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 the way that people expected. There is people starting to sell to disinvest. So I think. Uh, I, I saw different research. It was mostly, if you want, kind of signals that are saying uh -uh, it's not not everything is going as planned. Not 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 everything is growing as planned. We may not reach this, you know, transformation of esport into a very strong, but a bit isolated niche, if I can say, not, not super correct, but into super mainstream competing with sport. At the moment. It didn't happen as expected. That's my impression. So, and I, and I was I, I wasn't taking too much attention lately because of everything else was happening. And then I started reading two or three articles, and that's more or less my my doubt. If you want, I don't have a definite answer as always. No, no, it, it's not a clear path. Um, at the end of the day, I think in a way, esports has to it has to find its own space or another space, if you will. Right? I don't think it's going to compete. Um, with with sports, with traditional sports, I was actually speaking uh, about this with uh, Cesar Piliqueta on the podcast. Um, you know, in one of the episodes, um, he is the founder of Falcons, um, a mm -hmm. team here in Spain. And and I asked him, and he told me, no, I think these are just complementary, and it's just a way to kind of like get new fans interested in competitions and sports. Um, so I, I, I guess yeah, it, they just need to find new ways. Uh, or a new space that's going to help them blossom uh, again. Mm -hmm. That's the industry which which we hope we do. So yeah, Carol, I love I love this because uh, we 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 you know we've been speaking about so many different innovations. We've been talking about um, broadcasting. I mean, not broadcasting, generative AI. Broadcasting is what I want to talk about now, but I'm not yep. sure we're going to have a lot of time. But I did want to ask uh, a few uh, questions on 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 broadcasting. Um, Maybe you can go very briefly uh, on on dynamics that you're seeing um, around the you know around the industry in Europe, um, or maybe even how different consumption patterns like short form video, looking at highlights, look at documentaries like Rectum, for example. Um, how is this uh, impacting the overall broadcasting market? But, you know the the things I've been following again. Not a super expert in broadcasting rights per se. But obviously, I, I've always been, everything I've done some way, 
depended on you know the the shape of the broadcasting media rights. Uh, so I I did my best always to understand what was happening. In this case, clearly in this moment, uh, because of timing, Italy is just launched. Uh, sorry, I don't remember two weeks ago, uh, the new phase. Okay, for the Serie A <coughs> domestic rights, and and the approach is basically much more open than in the past. Uh, with layers, they call it um, uh, in some way, but it's basically layers. So the first option is we try to sell direct, and there are like eight options with, for the first time, a mix of exclusive, not exclusive, uh, and also a bit of, um, if you want, not fragmentation, but packaging of rights, uh, a bit not at the level of the US, where it's it's amazing the complexity of rights and the and how little things are shaped. You know, it, it's packages done of these little highlights and that. So, but definitely going into more um, a lot more possibility and different options, even non-exclusive options, because clearly, I mean, clearly, if you ask the fans, they would like everything in one place, but maybe in many places, so they can select by whatever you know different criteria they may have more freedom. Uh, there is also a bit of free-to-air. There is one thing super interesting. This is the, the VAR will be available as content. So also the content that is in the rights and the content that remains with the league, et cetera, et cetera, there is much more. So it's not only if you want to know the live game, the highlights, and, and the VOD of the game. There is a bit of more breadth of content. I think it's modernizing. For, for a country like Italy, it's this, this time is much more modern than in the past. Then there is an option that they go with with an agency, and then there is an option that even if I th I think they still created they created direct to consumer. So if everything doesn't go as they like, because there are um, limits of you know minimum uh, price for each layer, etc., uh, they could activate uh, themselves, which is basically even if again uh, more and more distribution of sport goes in so many different channels and layers and I buy the right, then I give it back to you and you reshare. So even in the UK, you know, with the Premier League. So uh, if you want the diversification of revenue stream and the diversification and layerification of distribution channel is, is huge now. So it's never one uh, option and, and, and that's all, no? Uh, I think it's given more, it depends what the markets, how the markets react. It's super curious. I think the, the, the first uh, deadline is like in one week. So we'll, we'll discover okay. soon. Okay. Yeah. Probably when this comes out, we'll have discovered. And, yeah. um, and I guess um, my other question around this is, are, are there any other trends that you're seeing in the space? And then is there, without going into too many details, um, what is driving so many um, changes in the broadcasting landscape? Is it new technology? Is it new consumption patterns? Like, for example, Gen Z, how they're looking at or they're consuming sport in a very different way. Um, I understand maybe a broad question. So if you just want to go down into the, you know, um, trends that you see, that's totally fine. So take it wherever you want. I think the reasoning behind, I guess, is they realize that just staying with the old traditional model that was basically designed on, it's not a reality anymore. Okay. Pay TV may still be relevant, yeah. but there is so much other stuff happening. Oh, yeah. So it's like, yeah, you, you try, obviously the, the, you know, the, what they're trying to do is on one end, for sure, maximize revenues. 
somehow because of the transformation protect also you know the sport the, the, call it the product it's not nice but it's a product in the end right so it's a bit of both but for sure maximizing revenue is always top and and to do it you need to understand how the ecosystem around you is changing because you may be leaving either you can contract or create issues i remember at some point for many years the fifa rights were split between web and mobile so in theory in some countries i could uh, be on, on uh, whatever, 5G network, four at the time, sorry, 3G network, come in the office, get on the Wi-Fi, and the rights were not there. So clearly you designed the rights for, for a long time, for, for many years. Uh, you need to be <laughs> careful that it's forward-looking, right, or forward-proof. Forward so the fact that you're finally realizing, okay, the, the, the ecosystem around me is different, uh, and clearly you're also trying to balance the one thing that pay TV brought is for sure a lot more money, but a lot less reach, right? And especially with this risk of Gen Z, if you want, or in general, all these people who are spending so much time on, on different ways of consuming content, you may lose in, in the long term an audience, okay? It's not a question of age, because if it's only age, uh, the behavior, the cohort grows, and it may change the behavior a bit, not completely. On the other end, if it's people losing interest in the sport, that's super dangerous, like extremely dangerous, right? So it's not that they don't want to pay whatever subscription they need to. They don't care about the sport. And that's the most lethal thing that can happen to, to a sport, I think. And in the sense of, of, of trends, I think uh, maybe this 360 view on uh, fan engagement based on, on content that is not only pure sport, it's not diluting the sport. It's getting the sport closer to people in the end. Because when you, you open, whatever way you consume content, even if the live game is the live game, but everything else is mixed. You don't have, even in, I see I have an eight-year-old that plays football and <laughs> talks about football a lot. But in any case, it's not too much on digital devices for the moment. But there is a consumption of content that is mixed between, you don't know, music, whatever interest you have. They're all mixed together. So the closer you, you go to how people interact in society, the, I think the stronger your product will be. Because it's clearly, sport is, uh, very often we create experiences that are born in sport and push sport outside. And what, what we discussed before and what I think it's important to do is understand that you may want to do it from the other side, no? from the fan inside. And understand the complexity of fans, the, if you want the, the, the 360 degrees of what a fan uh, needs, wants in any given time. And if you want to be a destination, you need to embrace more the fan than, than just the sport. I agree. It's such a complex um, situation because obviously the fans are adopting new behaviors because of new technologies, which is, you know, and, and I was having this conversation with uh, Patricia Peiro from Telecoming on the podcast and, and basically sports properties are playing in a way catch up to, um, and there's a gap between what fans ex expect because of these new technologies and what sport properties are able to deliver. Um, so, so that's a you know a big challenge that they need to face. Um, Carlo, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so, oh, it's okay, you, it's okay. If you let me, I, I want to ask um, a few questions on on leadership and your career because you've had a you know such a brilliant career so far, and and what's yet to come. Um, first of them being, um, is there a moment that you are most proud of, or 
that you you know recall fondly? My, my obviously uh, being on a vendor side, you know the win winning not not per se, but winning your clients and and having this thing of I remember we were doing we've done a lot of big sports clients, but at some point we had UEFA and we didn't have FIFA, so at some point we lost. Uh, a pitch for the FIFA com in, I don't remember when, 2000 something. But the next time we won. And then I said, okay, we've done almost everything. We just missed the Olympics. And then in a quite an incredible way, uh, we started doing Olympics in 2007, 2008 uh, with NBC Olympics. So we were working in 30 Rock, to be honest, <laughs> in, in the middle of Manhattan for the first through streaming digital Olympics, because that was the first time that active streaming was available. We could move back and forth. It was transformational. And, and I don't think it's more the fact that you have an idea and you, you create an experience and you launch the experience and you're there maybe at night watching NFL games at 2 a.m. with 10 devices in front. And, you know, having, doing this with your team, the client's team, checking what the fans are saying on Twitter. It's, it's really, I think it, it's this lucky place where you can create something that people use uh, normally in numbers, in big numbers, and seeing their reaction. And, and then, you know, having the next idea. I think it's this cycle of idea, build, launch, and feedback. That was the, the most exciting, uh, if you want, uh, has always been these, these things of building, launching, and, and then improving by, uh, with the feedback. I don't think it's so sexy, but that's the idea. <laughs> no, but I love that because, and I was just going to tell you, that's a great framework. For you to highlight that as a, a, a as your most proud moment, I think it's it's just fantastic because it's it's a lesson that people can learn even even in this question. No, and um, with everything that we've talked about, Carlo, in, in terms of you know new technologies, new innovations, the broadcasting landscape also changing. I mean we're going to see a very different future for the for the football industry no what would be the key skills that you believe leaders of the future need to have get ready for that when that future arrives but for sure is adaptability which is related to change management etc without going to you know management books uh, but definitely being adaptable being curious and try not to even if obviously, if, I mean, if you have a cash cow, you need to protect the cash cow, etc. But the more, I mean, if you can, because sometimes uh, it's not super easy. Yeah? If you can think long term, operate short term, but think long term, which normally be prepared to be adaptable and not being scared of change. Normally that's, I mean, <clears throat> I have to say the, the experience I had in my career is we, we grew a company from very small to very big. And we, it was always done with the long-term mentality, always. But then different scenario may need different kind of leadership. So it's, I don't, it's very difficult to, you know, to preach in this case. Yeah. But that's why being adaptable and curious seems to be always true, valid, I think. But you're an example of that. Who would have told you? Uh, a few years, not, not many years ago, just a few years ago, that you would have your own newsletter again with Scarf, <laughs> that you would be playing around generative AI. I mean, you're just saying, hey, this is coming to me. I need to adapt and, and play around with uh, the, these new changes. And, and I think that's a, a great lesson overall to learn. No? So 
Carlo, one last question from my end. Um, yeah. You mentioned at the beginning, you are now attending so many in-person sports industry events. What is the value that those events like World Football Summit and for the audience also to know if they haven't already, you will be joining mm -hmm. us in, in Europe, in WFS Europe in Sevilla. Yep. So what Looking is the value? Forward to it. What is the value? That these... okay. that, that's very personal. I normally go to this event because I've never been a, a salesperson, right? I've always hopefully convinced some clients to work with us, but not directly. And I'm very often attracted by the content. So if I go to an event, it's a nice event, we're organized, nice people, but the content sucks, I'm not happy <laughs> because I want to learn something new. I want to discover a new company. I want to discover how whatever, you know, a football club in, in the U US is doing something different that I didn't know. I want to meet new people, discover new people. Just in a working, I, and again, this may seem disrespectful. I love meeting people, but you know, meeting the same people and chit chatting and beer. I really want to get something new, or new, different. Or for me, I, I maybe no. Everybody knows it. I didn't, and I'm, I'm happy because I just discovered something. And then, obviously, staying being with people is great. Sorry, but <laughs> I'm. I normally. Prepare the agenda, look at the agenda and prepare to be in almost every single session that I can. But again, that's personal, to be honest. But that's the beauty of it, these events. No? Some people go there just to a network and they don't sit on the panels. I'm, I'm more on your side. Um, if I could, I would sit down in every single panel and just try to learn, uh, which is all pretty much the reason I set up this podcast, to, to learn from people like yourself. <laughs> so just so that I could learn yeah. and learn more. But on the other hand, I have huge respect because I'm not capable of doing that of those uh, uh, business development people that spend every single moment with a prospect. And I can, I can, yeah. I know, and I can see. I have huge respect to say, "Wow, that, I need to learn that." I'm really, I'm not good at it. Well, that that must have that must drain a lot of energy, and you have a, you have to be, you know. Um, very prepared to do that so yeah, yeah fully agree yeah. fully agree it's just a matter of how you know we would approach an event and and you can see so many different perspectives now which is again the beauty of, of of these events to me carlo i want to thank you very much because i would sit here for hours just asking questions and then finish the conversation speaking about the office uh, but we don't have uh, much more time so yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing all your knowledge with me and with the audience. I think they're going to get a lot of value from the conversation. Um, where can people learn more about you and, and the work that you're up to now? But I think uh, as the social uh, platform that is uh, more relevant for professional uh, at the moment, especially in our industry, LinkedIn is a good starting point. Um, I have my newsletter and uh, but everything starts from there, to be honest. And then obviously, let's meet in Sevilla. And, and thank you for being so patient to listen so such a long time to my ramblings <laughs> well it, it was very much worth it i'll tell you that now and definitely looking forward to sitting down in a panel together in sevilla and and kind of like comment on the different innovations um good thank you so much i hope to welcome you back some other time uh, if you're up to it uh, i would be thank thrilled you. to keep on speaking about um, how technology evolves and how uh, new innovations that come up in this place which i'm sure they they will happen Thank you so much, Carlo. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. Bye. And there you have him, Carlo De Martis. I hope you enjoyed that deep dive into the sports innovation ecosystem. Here are some nuggets that I took away. Generative AI is seriously game-changing, especially for the content and creative side of sports. 
It's all about blending text, video, and audio in innovative ways to adapt to what fans really want. Remember though, innovation isn't just about technology. It's about creating real value for fans and the entire ecosystem. New kids on the block like the Kings League and Wrexham aren't looking to reinvent football. They're all about bringing the game closer to fans, a lesson that traditional football could do well to learn. That said, just because an initiative works in one market, don't assume it'll be a hit in another. Each market has its unique context. The MLS is really one to watch. Their partnership with Apple and their market context puts them in a prime position for innovation. On the broadcasting front, the key is to mirror how people interact in society. The more we embrace fans and understand their desires, the stronger our offerings will be. I loved Carlos' take on his proudest moment, building, launching, and gathering feedback on his framework. It goes to show that the journey is just as important as the end result. And finally, Carlo nailed it with the essential leadership skills for sport industry leaders, adaptability, curiosity, and balancing short-term action with long-term thinking. Did anything else stand out to you? Let us know on social media. Don't forget to subscribe and read the podcast on your platform of your choice and share it with your industry colleagues. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the World Football Summit Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.